0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations.
1: Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at JasonThacker.com weeklytech Weekly Tech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Matthew K. Mink, an ethics and theology professor at Fuller Theological Seminary and the editor of Reform Public Theology, a global vision for life in the world. And today, we talk about a reform vision for public theology and ethics. Dr. K. Mink is a public theologian who explores the pressing questions that Christians face serving in politics, culture, and the marketplace. At Fuller, he holds the Richard John Mao Chair of Faith and Public Life. He also serves as a research fellow at the Center for Public Justice. And now, let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. K. Mink, thank you so much for joining me today on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit of your background and the background behind this work and kind of the goal that you had in assembling a volume like this?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, you know, I mean, so much of life is uh, for academics is biography. And for me, this really began with two main decisions. One was, when I was a student in university, I was a political science student, and I was really interested in going into politics and law. And uh, as a young Christian, my grandmother was very concerned for my soul. <laughs> she uh, she said, "You know, Matthew, dear Matthew, you can't go into politics and law. You know, the devil is there. The devil's going to get you." And um, so from an early age, I was wrestling with these questions of faith in politics, faith in law, faith in public life, and then decided to go on to seminary to really wrestle with those questions of faith in public life. And what does it look like to live out the gospel in a very complex world? And while I was going to seminary, I had the benefit of working at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. This This is where Tim Keller is a pastor. And while I was working there, I served as sort of like a pastor for professionals uh, who were working in New York City, you know, called by Jesus to serve in, in marketing and the arts and finance and medicine and all these different fields. And it was my job as a pastor to walk with these Christians as they tried to navigate New York City, uh, the complexities of culture and race and politics that is Manhattan. And so from a young age, I was wrestling with these questions of how do we as Christians serve as salt and light and leaven in the city? And that's what really drove me to this field of public theology, which is really the focus of this book, Reformed Public Theology specifically, really wrestling with how do we live out these reformed convictions in very diverse settings in the marketplace and in science and in politics and the arts. And that's what really drives my own sense of vocation as a as a teacher of theology. But it really does drive the the focus of this book as well.
1: Yeah. Well for those Listeners who may not be familiar with kind of the Reformed tradition or the Reformed movement, can you give a brief overview of the movement or the tradition and how we've kind of, I think, we've seen a resurgence in many ways of kind of the Reformed
0: tradition in modern public life? Can you kind of speak to that reality? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, very simply put, uh, the Reformed tradition begins uh, with the Reformation, um, specifically, you know, in the 1500s with someone named John Calvin in Switzerland. And John Calvin there in Geneva developed this tradition of pastors who would go out and plant churches in, in France and the Netherlands and Scotland and England and Switzerland and Hungary and, and New England. And this movement that he began was really focused on sola scriptura, or really a, a focus on scripture as the, the final authority of faith, sola gratia, by grace alone are, are we saved. And many other doctrines, but one I would say is the priesthood of all believers, that um, it's not just the priests who do God's work, but it is, it is all of us who are called by God to serve God in business and in politics and in medicine and all these different vocations that these are holy Uh, and sacred callings. And so we are all participants in the mission of God, not just missionaries. And I would say that, unfortunately, the Reformed tradition has become known exclusively for questions of soteriology, which is essentially how we are saved. So when you say Calvinism, or Reformed theology, the first thing that comes to people's minds is predestination or election, which is a question having to do with how are we saved and that it is is God who saves us. But really the Reformed tradition, this 500-year tradition of thinking about theology and faith, is about so much more than just how are we saved. It also has a lot to say about what happens after we're saved? If you are in Christ, how does that change the way you live as a parent or as a politician or as a citizen of a city? Um, how does that change the way you engage in the arts and in politics and every other aspect of life? And so, you know, this reformed tradition has a long history of thinking about public issues. And if I had to say, Why this resurgence today? Um, I think there are a wide variety of reasons. But as I look within evangelicalism in America today, historically, evangelicalism has had a very, very strong emphasis on a personal relationship with Jesus that I am personally connected to him and that I connect other individuals to him. Uh, Evangelism, right? That I have this sort of personal, devotional, spiritual life. And that's a strong point for evangelicalism. But what evangelicalism has often lacked is a thoughtful understanding of how to engage public life. Now, evangelicals have sort of random issues that they are very passionate about. You know, you can think of um, abortion or pornography or global poverty. Um, They're very passionate about these very specific issues But they have tended to lack a broad vision of what public life is about and what it's for and what it means to serve God as uh, a real estate agent or a doctor or um, a construction worker. That's sort of day-to-day tasks, that there is more to being a Christian in public life than just being against abortion, you know, whatever else. And what Reformed theology provides many evangelicals is a richer understanding of how we engage in politics and work and really just sort of these complex questions that everyday Christians deal with outside the church. Yeah, it's funny that you say it and describe it that
1: way, because that's basically my story. Um, I became a believer when I was eighteen. I grew up in a originally Church of Christ, and then moving into the Southern Baptist churches. And for me, it was it was it was all about a personal relationship with Christ, and I didn't have kind of that public vision of understanding. And that's where through seminary and even really after seminary for me is where a lot of this kind of my eyes were opened to understanding that there is a way not only does my faith connect to my personal salvation, my personal relationship with Christ and that of my family and community and church, but to the wider society. And it's how it's affecting what I do, not just in terms of vocational ministry per se, but seeing all of life under the banner of God. And that's where I was introduced to this field of public theology early on, Uh, not only within the Reformed tradition, but you also see a pretty strong public theology with even the Roman Catholic Church as well. So can you speak to a little bit of what is public theology proper? I know it's been kind of an emerging discipline per se, Um, even those like Calvin and Kuyper and Bavink, who had a rich public theology in that sense weren't using that language per se. Um, But as we've seen in the last few decades, kind of a resurgence a renewed interest in the field of public theology, what is it? Uh, What does it mean to engage all of life under the banner of the gospel?
0: I think that in general, for many evangelical Christians, you know, you may have experienced this as well. um, The options are towards culture is often uh, fight or flight or really just consume. So I'm going to fight the culture. I'm going to try to dominate and win the culture as a Christian, uh, or I'm going to run away from the culture because it's big and it's scary and it's nasty. Or I'm just going to consume the culture and be sort of absorbed by it. Um, And really what we find in the work of reformed theologians like Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bavink is a way of being deeply faithful to the gospel and yet also deeply present in the world, Uh, this sort of faithful presence in these different areas of life. Richard Mao calls this, uh, at some points, he calls this a holy worldliness. So to be in the world, but to be in the world in a holy way. Or he he also uses this sort of image of convicted civility, that I have these deep Christian convictions, and I'm not going to apologize for them in public life, but I'm going to hold these convictions with A grace and a generosity and a civility towards those that I disagree with. And the last term he would use is principled pluralism, which is to say, I have my principles, um, but I am going to make a plural space for others, for Muslims and atheists and Jews and Buddhists that, you know, in America, I want religious freedom for all people not just religious freedom for Christians. And I do that because of who Christ is. And it's not out of a sort of liberal relativism that truth doesn't matter and that all religions are true or something like that. It is because I am convinced that Jesus Christ, as my Lord and savior, demands that I love my neighbors that I love my my neighbors who are Muslims, who are atheists, who are Jews, and that I create space for them even when I disagree with them. And so this tradition of John Calvin and Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bovink really do help us avoid classic mistakes that evangelicals can make, which is sort of fighting the culture, running away from the culture, or just sort of mindlessly absorbing and being assimilated by the culture. Yeah, I'm glad you bring up uh, religious freedom or religious liberty, because that's a core
1: of what it means to be Baptist in many ways. I mean, that's core to our tradition, our beliefs. I have a friend who says that's what um, encouraged him to be Baptist. So obviously, there's other theological issues, other ethical issues, but religious freedom is such a core issue. And that's really tied in many ways, I think, as you're saying, to this rich model, this uh, gospel field model for public theology, One of the things in the book that you do that I really like is you talk about how public theology is a global and ecumenical discipline. Can you talk a little bit, I think often, especially in the West, we kind of get siloed and kind of pigeonholed into thinking that our view of the world or our culture is the predominant culture throughout the world. But I think you rightfully, especially with the diversity and the, uh, the various folks that you have contributing to this volume, you model well that it is this global movement. So what do you mean by that it's global and ecumenical discipline?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. I'm glad you picked up on that. Um, Another unfortunate thing in terms of the branding of Reformed theology is people tend to think of it as something for white men, (laughs) particularly white men with beards. (laughs) Um, But what we really demonstrate here uh, in this book is that you know, Calvinism and Reformed theology is flourishing uh, in places like Indonesia and China, in Africa, and in Brazil. And we, we have voices from Peru and, and the Philippines. And here you see Reformed Christians who are wrestling with questions like Chinese labor laws and the drug war in the Philippines and uh, immigration in Peru and racism in 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 america and they are finding in the Reformed tradition in the work of people like john calvin and herman bovink and abraham Kuyper, they're finding theological resources to help them in very diverse places and very diverse contexts and you know in the coming century the future of Reformed theology is going to be a very global and a very diverse one. And that's really exciting. And really, Reformed theology, as best, is a living tradition. It's not one where we simply try to memorize the words of John Calvin and sort of say them over and over again. Um, but we continue to reflect on the command of Scripture and the work of God in the world in diverse places like um egypt and india and scotland and and brazil and so um it really was a really exciting thing to work with these authors who are doing very fresh work um, in africa and latin america and asia and who in many ways get get ignored you know we all know sort of the famous you know white calvinists who write but we 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 often miss out on quite a lot of, of wisdom and energy that is going on in the Global South for Reformed theology.
1: So to dig in a little bit on public theology as a discipline, I think sometimes when we talk about public theology, there's significant semantic overlap with public theology and political theology. So both of these kind of disciplines, can you speak to the difference between them? I think often, at least for me, knowing that some of my kind of reformed heroes and Kuiper and Bobbing served in politics, they were politicians themselves, uh, even leading a, a major party uh, in their country. I think often we see public theology and political theology the overlap there. And can you speak to maybe some of the distinctions between those two as disciplines? Um, the contours, kind of the spheres that they operate in?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there, there is a lot of overlap, but we're going to talk just about the distinction. And the distinction really is this, that political theology is focused on the state. It's focused on the government. And what should the government do? Uh, what are the responsibilities of politicians and governmental offices You know, regarding all sorts of issues? Public theology is about all of the institutions that make up our public space. So um, that includes governments, but it also includes universities and media, uh, newspapers, uh, organizations, and just sort of everything that makes up the public square, religions, uh, scientific laboratories, and, and so forth. And so public theology looks at issues not simply through the lens of what should the government do, But what should all of civil society do? And the reason I like that is because, you know, you pick a social issue like poverty, for example. Uh, Well, the government obviously has some responsibility when it comes to caring for the poor but if you're only thinking in terms of the government you are missing out on the responsibilities of families and churches and nonprofits and neighborhoods and cities and so what public theology tries to do is look at the diverse actors within the public square and think about how they all respond to you know a particular issue rather than just saying here's what the government should do to fix x problem
1: yeah, and that's one of the things about the book that I was impressed by is kind of the diversity and views. Um, as we've already talked about kind of uh, where people are located in terms of geography and cultures. So. To dig in a little bit then on the book itself, you organized the book around six key areas. Obviously, there's a number of chapters, kind of wide-ranging in terms of topics that they cover. But what are these six areas, and why were those the six that you chose in some sense? So like, what's kind of the thinking that's gone into how you organize this work and the type of
0: contributors that you sought out? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's see if I can remember all six. Let's see. So we have a section on faith and politics. We have a section on faith and the market, faith and economics. We have a section on uh, faith and the academy. And let's see, we have a section on faith and the arts and aesthetics, beauty. And then we have a section on um, the connection between uh, worship and public life. And that really looks at how the songs that we sing, um, how our, our confessions, our baptisms, our prayers these things that we do in the sanctuary how they are meant to impact our lives in the street so how do we connect these things we do on Sunday morning with our public lives on Monday morning and that's really how the how the book ends is is reflecting on how we can have a, a deeper connection between Sunday and Monday because so many of us uh, sort of live our lives in pieces where we do sort of spiritual things on Sunday and then we go about our lives on Monday in ways that are totally detached from worship. So yeah, so really looking at how, how we live out the gospel um, in politics, in economics, in the academy, in the arts, and then how that gets sort of sent out from Sunday morning worship into Monday morning life.
1: Yeah, I really like how you picked up on the kind of compartmentalized life. I think that's especially prominent in the West. And I wouldn't say that's just limited to the West per se, because I think we naturally do that as human beings. We had uh, Dr. Jonathan Pennington from Southern Seminary on about his uh, Jesus and the Great Philosopher book. And he uses a really great, depends on where you're from in the United States in terms of uh, your linguistic background. But I uh, I always said a dresser. Others would say like a chest of drawers, uh, but he uses that kind of an illustration for that kind of compartmentalized life. And he said even often as Christians, we give Christ or God when we become believers, we think, oh, we'll give him the best drawers. You know, even the the prime place, we'll give him the most drawers, but maybe not all the drawers. And at least that's part of my Christian story of becoming a believer and understanding the gospel was I always thought it was kind of that drawer analogy but realizing, especially in the beauty of the Reformed tradition, this all of life, the entire dresser is actually the Lord's. And so he's calling us to live in certain ways. One of the things that is exciting for me is looking at an edited volume like this is that you have 23 chapters, 23 different, well, actually more than that in terms of contributors. So there's pretty wide ranging things here. So just as an editor, were there any volumes or any of the contributions that really stood out to you or maybe even shocked or surprised you? So maybe you had asked someone to get something and it comes back and it was a little different that challenged you or pushed you um, or just kind of came together and you are like, man, I'm really pleased with how that all came together.
0: Well, you know, I think one that, that stood out to me that was quite beautiful came from a young immigrant from Peru who uh, emigrated to Chicago as a boy and really experienced this sense of homelessness as a young Christian feeling like, I I don't really belong here in Chicago. And when I go back to Peru, I don't really feel um, like I belong in Peru anymore either. And so he was haunted by this sense of homelessness. And this is a very very common experience for immigrants around the world. Uh, And as you know, this is really the century of migration and uh, people are moving all over the place. And it's really a question for churches as to how do we respond to Christians who are on the move and how do we minister to them? And this particular author wrote a beautiful essay about a reformed theology of communion of the Lord's Supper and how at the table with the body and blood of Christ, he found a home. And he was able to bring his public experience of immigration and homelessness to the table. And through a conversation about Reformed worship, sort of this immigration and communion come together in a really beautiful way. And that was potent for me as an American citizen who feels very at home here. It helped me to see communion in a new way. Uh, another one that jumped out to me was uh, an essay on fashion and clothing. Uh, it's it's not very common for Christians to think about clothing and fashion and what it means for us to faithfully dress ourselves, or he he uses the language of adorning ourselves, you know, and just encourages us to think about when you dress up for your wedding day, that is an act of love. Uh, You are adorning yourself as a way to honor your betrothed, but also honor honor God and all the people who are there. And so he wrote this beautiful essay on a theology of clothing, uh, a theology of dressing ourselves, and pulls some, you know, amazing quotes from people like John Calvin and Carl Barth mm-hmm. and Abraham Kuyper, who wrote about clothing mm-hmm. and, and the gift that God gives us in, in colors and style and things like that. The last one comes from uh, James K.A. Smith, who wrote a, an awesome essay on poetry and mm-hmm. uh, a Christian, just Christian praise for poetry and what poetry can mean and do for our faith and just for our life in the world. that was that was another one. But of course they're all my favorite. I have no favorites but those were those were ones that that stood out to me. Oh, one last one has to do with uh, an African scholar who comes from South Africa and is reflecting on what it means to be baptized into a church that is both black and white when you're living in a society that's divided between black and white. And uh, he writes about his own reformed theology of baptism and what it means for us to be one in the body of Christ and how that should change how we behave inside the church, but also how we behave in society, in, in sort of a racialized, divided society. That that was an essay that that I'll think about for a long time, I know.
1: Yeah. And that's the beauty of a volume like this is there's so much there. And so we encourage listeners to go and check out this volume uh, to be able to grab a link. We'll have that in the show notes for folks to be able to pick up a link to it, but it's such a beautiful book because there is so much there The Essays are pretty wide ranging. One that kind of drew me in, and it's probably just because, as I told you before we got on the podcast, I really enjoy Bob Ink, uh, Herman Inc's writings, and so he's he's been very influential to me thinking through issues of science and technology. And you even have Dr. James Eglinton write a volume or write a chapter in the volume as well. And we had him on the podcast last year talking about his new Bob Inc. biography. So Herman Bob Ink, for me at least has been such an encouragement because I think often when we engage issues of modernity and politics and public theology, but also even the sciences and technology, that's one of the areas that's interesting. I think most people wouldn't assume that someone writing around the turn of the century would be, have a lot to say about science and technology because we often think that these issues are brand new, that we're facing them for the first time as the church, but reading Bavik, at least for me, was really encouraging because not only was he dealing with similar types of questions of what is technology and how is it shaping not only the home, but our larger society. But you get into some of these questions that are really these age old questions that we're asking in light of new opportunities with technology. And so, as you survey kind of the broader discipline of reformed public theology, how do you think that our reformed public theology helps us to engage some of these kind of more modern or contemporary questions in terms of the digital public square or issues of technology and science, where it seems that they're brand new questions? But I think, and I would argue that at the root of them, they're actually age-old questions, just kind of being asked in new, uh, light of new opportunities. So, is there anything that you think distinctively that reformed public theology would say to some of these more modern technology challenges or digital challenges in the
0: public square? Absolutely, I think that's a great that's a great question. You know, I mean, I with respect to our our Catholic and our Anabaptist and our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, I think they, they themselves have a great deal of wisdom to offer on these issues. So I don't want to say that, you know, reform theology is just perfect on everything and, and they're all terrible. Um, but I do think that there are some, some sort of helpful habits of mind that reform theology has to offer when we think about things like technology and social media and so forth. One is, I think, an appreciation for the complexity of life. So good Reformed theologians will not have a simplistic response to social media, where they say, oh, it's all great, or it's all terrible. Once again, they, they, they will um, resist the fight or flight you know, sort of options. Uh, instead, they will encourage, uh, a more nuanced, you know, reflection on how we use, uh, how we use technology and how we engage in technological culture. So this basic theological story of the goodness of creation, the fall and the curse and the redemptive work of Christ in the world is important. So creation, fall, redemption. And you'll find that throughout these essays as a helpful, tool so when it comes to technology saying um you know god created us to build technology um, from the very beginning to work with creation and to develop it and to make new things and so technology is is a gift and it is it is a faithful thing to uh, design new things and to explore god's creation so creation helps us think about Um, technology, but so does the fall. That um, because of our sinfulness and our rebellion and our selfishness, we twist technology in all kinds of inhumane ways. We use it to uh, enrich ourselves and uh, steal from others and destroy life. And we develop technology that, you know, dehumanizes people and pornography and all sorts of other things. And really social media has you know, is designed to connect us, and yet we feel more lonely. <laughs> we feel more disconnected. And then the third is really redemption. And what reform theology argues is that Christ is about the healing and the making new of all new things. Um, so this redemptive side really calls us to say, how might we develop a redemptive imagination um, for how we engage with technology? How might we be a healing presence? in social media. How might we explore the ways in which technology can lift up the poor and uh, can connect communities and lead people to Christ? And so let's not run away from technology. Let's not demonize it. Let's also not idolize it. Good theology is going to put tech in its place, in its proper place. Um, within the larger community of humanity and under the sovereignty of God. It's not going to put technology on God's throne. And that's sort of the core of what Reformed theology is about, is this distinction between the creator and the creation. And you never take something from creation, namely technology, and put it in the place of the creator. And so, yeah, throughout this book, you see... You know, scholars in Africa and Latin America and Asia and Europe using these theological tools to engage all sorts of, of cultural questions, whether it be racism or clothing or political violence or whatever else. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I really appreciate about the volume in general,
1: but even just kind of this idea of the reformed public theology is the focus on nuance, um, on charity and complexity, and not seeing these things as just often as black or white issues And I think that's incredibly important, especially as we navigate a lot of the tensions of the Digital Public Square today, because so many of these issues, we don't have just a clear cut yes or no, good or bad, is that we have to engage these things with wisdom. We have to engage them with insight and doing so often by slowing down, uh, which is what we've talked a lot about here on the Digital Public Square is the idea of slowing down in a society that is constantly encouraging us to go faster and become more and more efficient is that sometimes by understanding who God is, who we are as his creatures, and then how he's called us to live in this world, through that framework, it helps us to navigate a lot of these questions with wisdom and with charity, ultimately loving God and loving our neighbor as Christ commands us in Matthew 22. As we end our time today on the podcast, one, I just want to say thank you for joining us. This has been a really fun conversation. Um, But for those who might want to go a little bit deeper, they pick up this volume, they read through it, and they really benefit from it. Maybe one or two volumes that you would recommend for folks if they want to dig into public theology or they want to dig into ethics a little bit deeper from a reform perspective. Um, Are there any volumes or books that you would recommend for folks to pick up?
0: So uh, I'd recommend a number of different things. Uh, First of all, if you're looking to get into the history of the Reformed tradition on these sorts of things, uh, Abraham Kuyper's Lectures on Calvinism, Uh, where he talks about the connection between Calvinism and politics and the arts and sciences. That's sort of a classic, you know, older work. Um, There's a brand new book coming out called Calvinism in a Secular Age, edited by Robert and Jessica Joustra. That's that's gonna be a great one that I encourage people to pick up. Richard Mao, my teacher and mentor, great man. Richard Mao wrote this uh, new book called All That God Cares About. And uh, that's on common grace and divine delight. That's just a a great little piece. He also wrote a great book called When the Kings Come Marching In that talks about how Christ is um, working to restore creation and make peace, as it says in Colossians, through his his blood shed on the cross. Behold, I'm making all things new. And then just on engaging culture, you know, You know, if you're just starting out in theology, Andy Crouch wrote a great little book called Culture Making, which is a very accessible book for folks who are new to the world of theology. So Andy Crouch's Culture Making is another great little piece. And so many other, so many other books. Of course, I wrote this other book called Work and Worship, and that is all about how people can connect their working lives to their worshiping lives. As I said, we we so often live our lives in pieces, right? We have our worshiping life on Sunday, and then we have our working life on Monday, and uh, never the two shall meet. And so, mm-hmm. that particular book that I wrote with this great scholar Corey Wilson uh, is one I'm I'm pretty proud of. So. Yeah, lots of options. Well,
1: we'll make sure a link to, for listeners' sake, we'll have all of those linked in the show notes so you can grab a couple of those and start off on it. We do appreciate, Dr. Kamek, for you coming on the podcast. It's uh, something that's been an honor to me to be able to have a conversation about uh, this really helpful work that we hope listeners will grab a copy of. Again, it's Reform Public Theology, a Global Vision for Life in the World. Uh, We'll have a link to that in the show notes for listeners to grab a copy of. Uh, But thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to join us here on the Digital Public Square.
0: Absolutely. Great to be here. And Jason, thank you so much for, you know, just creating this space where, you know, Christians can gather and talk about these issues of faith and public life. It just seems so important for us to have thoughtful, slower, gracious conversations where we're really um, wrestling with these complex public issues. The saints really need to be equipped today for a better public witness. So I'm, I'm grateful for you guys putting this stuff together. So thank you to you. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening.
1: If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Kamek and learn more about this book that he edited as well as the recommended resources in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the issues of ethics and technology, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at JasonThacker.com slash Weekly Tech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.